Well, let me begin today by saying that this week is going to be different. And what I mean by that is that about, I'd say between 45 to 50 Sundays per year, the man standing here behind this pulpit will be drawing our attention, those gathered here, to a specific Bible passage, reading it and expounding it. He will be teaching and applying that specific text. And and that is the case because we believe that the constant steady diet for God's people is God's word. That's how God's people grow. And we've decided as a church to rotate between Old and New Testament books. And so we just finished Jonah and Lord willing, the plan next week is to start a study in the book, the New Testament letter to Titus. And so you can begin reading ahead. We're gonna be studying Titus, Lord willing, uh, moving forward beginning next week. But today is going to be different. Uh, The elders, myself and Will and Robert wrote a letter to you, I think it was two weeks ago, explaining the the situation here at our church. I'm not going to rehash that here. We have copies of the letter in the hallway. But in summary, we are at a point as a church where our financial needs are are outpacing our giving. And so for the past three months, we've been spending more than we have been bringing in. And if you know at all how money works, that will only last but so long right? That, that's how money, that's how budgets work. And so this morning, I am going to, with fear and trembling, address the topic of giving. And I say that trusting fully in God's sovereignty that this morning there are more visitors than normal. But today's sermon is on money. And for the record, this is the first sermon that I have ever preached on money. Right? I've been here over seven years this is the first time, and I'm hesitant to do so I make that, that, that comment jokingly, but I do hesitate to preach on giving because I don't want to be misunderstood, which is why here at the outset, I just, I, just wanna, I just wanna make a few things as clear as possible. And so I'm just gonna make a few points here at the outset to, to introduce the topic to you in order to let you know just where I stand and how I and the elders, speaking for Will and Robert, just to let you know how we're thinking about our situation, okay? So here's just a few assumptions that that I bring to the table as we have this discussion on this topic. First, my basic assumption is that God has ordered our parts according to his will. So, So this local church is combined of the specific members that God has chosen. So, so some have gone, some have come. Some in the future will come and some in the future I assume will go. But when it comes to this local body and our practical functioning, our ability to carry out our divine mission, my basic assumption is that God has ordered us according to his will. So that every member has been placed here for his purposes. This comes from 1 Corinthians 12. Paul's talking about spiritual gifts. And notice the language he uses. He says, as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So the basic assumption is we all, we have all that we need to carry out our mission here with the people that we have. So that's the assumption. God's ordered us, therefore everyone who's part can carry out God's mission for us. We don't lack anything in the body because God has put us together and we are the body of Christ. Therefore, you should hear me say, our goal is not a number. My goal is not a number. My goal is faithfulness. 
Okay, my goal is not a number, my goal is faithfulness. I, I mean that. That is my firm conviction. And this idea, this language comes from a book by a pastor named Jamie Dunlop called Budgeting for Healthy Churches. But I want you to listen to this paragraph. He, he's a pastor up in the DC area and here's what he says. He says, I care very little, this is him talking to his church members, I care very little whether we meet our budgeted income. Right, that's the number. I care very little whether we meet that. If the congregation is faithful in their giving, but we still miss the budget, I'm elated. We will figure out how to adjust accordingly. But let's flip that around, he says. If the congregation is faithless in their giving and we still make budget, we failed. No matter how many good things we do with that money, what matters most is faithfulness, not how much money we give. Faithfulness matters more than income. This is the mentality you want your church to have. So here at the outset, the goal isn't a set amount for the church or for the individual. And it can be frustrating because the reality is that, that amount and, and setting a bar is often a, a hindrance to faithful giving, right? More than it's a help towards faithful giving. So, so set amounts, here, here's the problem with, with saying, hey, we just want this number. Set amounts can be met without sacrifice, just like set amounts can be missed even with sacrifice. So, so I don't wanna say, hey, here's the number, here's our goal. I mean, a great illustration of this point is Mark 12, when Jesus is in the temple and he's sitting opposite the, the treasury and he's watching people come. So they have all these, 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 these boxes, these offering boxes at the temple there in Jerusalem and people go in and they have metal coins and people go to the temple and they give their money and it's loud because it's metal coins in these metal boxes. And so Jesus goes, it's Mark 12, it's 41 through 44, but here's what, what Mark writes. Jesus sat down opposite the treasure and he watched people putting money into the offering box. And many rich people put in large sums. Verse 42, and a poor widow came and she put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And Jesus called his disciples to him and he said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow, listen to what he says, has put in more, that's an amount, more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For, here's the reason, they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So this story in Mark, Mark 12 makes a very clear point. The issue isn't the amount. God doesn't care about the amount because the measure is not how loud the offering box sounds when the coins go in. The measure is the amount you give relative to what you have, right? That's what he says. He commends the poor widow and says she gave more. He elevates her as an example, which must mean among other things that dollars and cents are not the most important thing. In fact, we would, I would say that the soil of the giver's heart is much more important than the amount of the giver's gift. Or to put it another way, God cares not about the money, but about your heart. I mean, this means that a $1 million offering from a heart that is only seeking to check, check a box is less valuable. And I would say less desirable than a $100 offering from a heart that is faithfully stewarding, stewarding what he or she has been given. I mean, does that, that, does that compute, comp, le, compute in your brain? It will in mine, just give me time. Right? But a million dollars from a heart that, that, that isn't moved, and it's just saying, well, I just wanna do what I'm supposed to do. That is less valuable. That's what the people are doing. They're giving out of their abundance. It, it didn't mean a thing to them. 
And so today's sermon, the title is The Heart of Faithful Giving, because I want us to be, I want to be a faithful giver. And in my prayer, the elders' prayer for this church, and what we're going to be praying for when we come back at 4 p.m. tonight, is that God will make us cheerful givers, yes, sacrificial givers, yes, but most of all, faithful givers who are just stewarding what we've been given. So you're not going to hear me say that you must give only or that you must give at least 10%. I'm not, I'm not going to draw that line. I'm not going to tell you what to do in terms of amount. I'm going to tell you what God calls his people to do, namely give faithfully, and I'm going to call you to follow Christ and glorify God by doing such. So that's, we want to be faithful givers. That's where we're going. That's our aim. And so I have an outline. Let me, let me pray for us, and then I'll, I'll lay out the outline, and we will, we will work through this. Okay, but let, let's pray together. Father, you have taught us to pray through your Son. Give us this day our daily bread. And so as, as we come to you as your people, we acknowledge that we are dependent upon your provision. Father, you provide us with every good thing that we could want or ever need. And so we, we just acknowledge that is the, the case day after day after day after day. And so I pray that, that we would have hearts that love you because of who you are. And because of your mercy and provision and grace that, that is showered upon us every time we open our eyes. And so give us hearts that are grateful, Lord. Give us lives that are spent freely for you. We give you thanks. Would you continue to meet our needs? Would you help us as a church to look to you as the all-sufficient provider? Even as we are giving everything back to you as an act of worship. So, so would, you, would you do a work in me and in us in this specific area? And it's Christ's name that we pray, amen. All right, so there, there's four points here. And again, the aim is faithful giving. So here's the four points and then we'll work through them. So first, faithful giving the reality. So that's point one. Then we'll do faithful giving the cost. And then third, faithful giving a picture and then fourth, faithful giving practical suggestions. Probably the, the least helpful will be the practical suggestions, um, but that's what we're going to do. Um, and, and just to, to make clear, this is, this is a, a starting point for an ongoing conversation. It's not as though you preach a sermon and everything's fixed and all the questions are answered. There's going to be things I'm not going to say, passages I'm not going to use. Um, I can only say so much. And so this, this is what I'm going to say. And then this is going to start our conversation. Okay, so, so don't get upset if I don't use the verse that you think I should. All right, or say what, I, what you think I should. All right, so first point, faithful giving the reality. So, so as we start, I, I, wanna, I want us to be confronted with the, the stark reality of money. And, and the reality is, is, is that money is one of those things in the Bible. It's, it's part of this group of things that, that I call perpetual potential snares. M money is a perpetual potential snare for the Christian. Now, money is not evil, Right? It is the root of all evil, but it is in and of itself not evil. I mean, Paul would tell Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, he says, tell the rich in this age not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but to set their hope on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So Paul doesn't say, hey, tell the rich to sell everything and not be rich anymore. So it's not wrong to be wealthy. It's not wrong to be rich. Paul says, tell them not to set their hope on riches, 
So, so that, that's the one thing. So, so Paul doesn't say, tell the rich to forsake their wealth. Money and, and wealth, they're not evil. They're not inherently sinful. It's not wrong to be wealthy. However, I say that money is a perpetual potential snare for the Christian because money is one of those things when it's not recognized as a good gift from God to be used for his purposes, it can quickly become an idol that drives you to live for it at the cost and expense of living for God. In other words, and we've said this before, money makes a good gift from God, but makes a terrible God in the place of God. So, so money's a good gift from God, but a terrible God. But money is one of those things that the Bible regularly talks about as, as a snare for the Christian, the one who would love God. And so money is one of those things that, that easily leads one to fall away from the Lord. When Jesus tells the parable of the soils, the, the thorns of the thorny soil that, that chokes out the seed, when Jesus tells the story, Jesus says that the thorns are the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for evil things. So, so this is part of what riches and the things of the world does it. It, it combats and chokes out fruitful lives for God. But even more harshly, listen to the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 6. Same place that he said, tell the rich not, not to set their hopes on riches. But here later he says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving, listen to what he says, this craving, this love of money, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Demas forsook Paul because he was in love with this present world, Paul would say. It's a great picture in, in Pilgrim's Progress of that character. But my point is that riches are deceitful and so dangerous because they teach us implicitly to put our hope in them. That they promise to offer safety and security and satisfaction. And when money and its stuff, the stuff it gets, when it becomes all of those things to us, guess who we don't need anymore? We don't need God. Thus, many are led to fall away because of a desire or craving or love of money. Thus, money is a perpetual potential snare for the Christian. We must always be on guard. I mean, power is another one of these snares, and sex is another one of these snares. And all three of these quickly move from good gifts to be enjoyed and used for God's purposes to enslaving idols that never deliver on their promises. That's the nature of sin, and these are specific sins. And so money is one of those. That's the reality of, of faithful giving is that faithful giving must be recognized as the act of worship that it is. Faithful giving comes from a heart that, that worships and loves Christ. And so, so the heart is the issue. Do you love Christ? And is your giving, is your use of money flowing from a heart that loves Christ? The reality is you could give away all that you have, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 13, and it be worthless if you have not love. If it's not moved by love, you could give away all that you have, he says. The use of money is an act of worship. It's either of Christ or of something else. One pastor is, is well known for saying that your purse strings are attached to your heart strings. How you spend says what you love. Right? How you spend says what you are worshiping. Paints a picture of the reality of your heart. 
This is just the reality of things. This is true. No matter how little or how much your money, your bank account, or for you older people my age and older, your checkbook says something about what you love. It says something about your heart. And so, so we can say God cares about your giving and how you use your money because he wants your heart. He has saved you to love him with your heart, all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so your use of money is not unspiritual. It can't be relegated to a category of, of non-importance. In fact, one, one author says, there's a fundamental connection between our spiritual lives and how we think about and handle money. We may try to divorce our faith in our finances, but God sees them as inseparable. How you spend your money is of utmost importance because God gives you your money that you might use it well, faithfully for his purposes, to love him. Giving is a worship issue. That's the reality. That's point one. Which leads to point two, faithful giving, the cost. The cost of faithful giving. I wanna go back to the widow in the temple here. In light of that passage, right, we can say that the cost of faithful giving, it's not 10%, it's everything. That's the cost of giving faithfully is everything. Or to say it in, a, in another way, the cost of faithful giving is everything. In fact, that's the exact same way I just said it. It costs everything. Maybe that shocks you. I'm not, I'm not saying it to shock you. I'm saying it because it's true. It costs everything to give faithfully. And I say that because I don't know how else you daily take up your cross and follow Jesus unless your life and everything therein is understood as his. And this is what, Paul would say in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Paul's view of the Christian life does not subtract our use of money from that which is dead to us and alive to Christ. It will not do to function in your Christian life as though your use of money is the one time when you don't have to live for Christ. As if when you spend your money, your old sinful self is free to come down off the cross and do as he wills. We live for Christ. And so we give our lives and everything for him. That is the cost of living faithfully, of giving faithfully. We give everything to him. And this is why one of the, the common questions about Christians and giving is the issue of the tithe. That tithing, maybe you've heard the word, literally it just means 10%. And tithing was an old covenant practice. In fact, it was, it was given or established in the law with Moses, but it, it was practiced before the law when Abraham met that priest named Melchizedek. He gave him a tenth of everything he had. But, but the, the tithe was an Old Testament requirement for the Israelites. And it literally meant that, that 10% of what they got was to go to support the, 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 the tribe of the Levites, the, the priestly tribe. So that was one of the offerings that Israelite was required to give. And so many people see the pattern of the Old Testament and say a Christian should give 10%. Now I'll, I'll say more about that in a minute. But the problem with that way of thinking is that we are pie chart types of people. Right? We're pie chart people, which means that if I tell you 10% goes to God, do you know what your mind quickly does? It calculates and it has this picture and says, okay, 10% goes to God. Do you know what else that means? 90% for me, right? So if I tell you 10%, you're like, great, I can do that. And then I get 90. So I'm not gonna tell you that you should give 10%. I'm gonna tell you to ask a different question. The question is not how much should I give to God but rather how much should I keep for myself and my family? That's the question. Not, hey, how much does God get, but how much do I need? 
That's a different question. Do you see how that question gets at it differently? The reality is there's nothing that you have that you did not receive. God is the owner and giver and provider of all things, which means, hear me say, you own nothing. You own nothing. God, as the owner of all things, has decided to grant you temporary possession or custody of some things. But it's not really yours. And the word for this is, is stewardship. We are stewards of the resources that God has provided us with, which certainly includes more than money, time and, and talent, but it, but it certainly includes money. And so the question I want us to ask is not how much should I give to God, but rather how much do I need to, to provide for myself and my family? And then the rest is his. And I'm gonna use it according to how he would have me spend it. And one, one of the, the good examples, in fact, I remember hearing this years ago, but a good example of what this looks like practically is the, the, the pastor, the hymn writer, the, the, the circuit preacher, John Wesley, right? The, him and his brother founded the, the Wesleyan church. But John Wesley, here's, here's what happened. He lived his life by this principle and the principle they lived by was to determine what he needed for himself to live on and then to give, give the rest away, right? And so here's, here's one author explaining Wesley's practice. Wesley records that one year early in his ministry, right, his income was 30 pounds. That's not a lot, right? That, that's not a lot. His living expenses, 28 pounds, so he had two pounds to give away. The next year, his income doubled, but he still managed to live on 28 pounds. So then he had 32 pounds to give to the poor. In the third year, his income jumped to 90 pounds, Instead of letting his expenses rise with, it, with his income, Wesley kept them to 28 pounds and gave away the 62 pounds. In the fourth year, he received 120 pounds. As before, his expenses were 28 pounds, so his giving rose to 92 pounds. Do you see? What do I need? Here's what I need, and anything excess, I'm going to give away. Wesley felt that the Christian should not merely tithe, but give away all extra income once family and creditors were taken care of. He believed that with increasing income, what should rise is not the Christian's standard of living, but the standard of giving. That's challenging, isn't it? Maybe it's a bit convicting. And so a good question for us to ask is, is our giving, is my giving sacrificial? Is it costly? Right? Every aspect of our lives is to be given, spent for Christ. That's why we exist. And so we, we have been given our resources for the good of loving God and loving others. And when it comes to finances, we're called to die to self and freely give for his purposes. And so one more thing, we'll move on to the third point. One more thing about the, the poor widow. Right? Some of you here need to, to hear the reality that God sees your giving. Right? You need to hear that because you should be giving more. Right? So some of you, God knows how little you give. He knows. He knows whether you give it all. He knows what amount you give. So you need to hear that. God sees and you'll give an account to him on how you stewarded the resource that he blessed you with. Right? So, so some of you need to hear that God sees your giving for that reason. But, but as I think about the poor widow, I would want her to know that God sees her giving too, not because she gave too little, but because she was surely tempted to walk away from the temple that day quite discouraged. Uh, imagine that poor, poor widow going to the temple Right, maybe, maybe she's waiting in line to put in her offering 
and, and she sees, but more importantly, she hears person after person in front of her putting all of their coins and piles of coins in the boxes and there's rattling and then there's noise and everyone is listening. Wow, that person gave so much. That person gave so much. And then the, the widow there in line thinking, why am I here? And why did I come? What do I have to offer really? But that poor widow ought to know that Jesus commends her because of her sacrificial giving. He sees her giving. And more importantly than that, he knows her heart. She has no reason to be ashamed. She has no reason to feel less significant than anyone else giving at the temple that day. It is her costly giving that Jesus says she gave more than anyone else who had put their money in the offering box because she contributed out of her poverty. So while there isn't a set amount or percentage I'm going to tell you that you ought to give, I can tell you that your giving ought to be costly. That's why, he's been, that's why you've been given resources. This leads to a third point. And this is, this is the, I think, the most important point. This is, this is a forward-looking point. Faithful giving a picture. This is one of those pictures that I can only account to, to God's providence because weeks ago, I know I was preaching this sermon and they all said, I didn't know what, what passage. We've all probably heard sermons on giving and we know the passages in 1 Corinthians or, or Malachi. And I'd done reading and some studying and I thought, well, what am I gonna say? What, what's the picture I wanna paint? And it just so happened that that day in our Bible reading plan, that the normal reading plan that we've been going through, and I assume some of you are going through this with me as, as, as a church, but that day we came to Exodus 35 and 36. And this picture came right from our Bible reading. And so the picture that's painted in Exodus 35 and 36 is that of the Israelites, the people of God. Moses, here's a little bit of context. Moses had led them out of Egypt through the Red Sea, miraculous deliverance. They, they'd come out into the wilderness. They'd started grumbling immediately. But, but Moses had gone up to Mount Sinai. He had met with God. He'd received the Ten Commandments. He comes down and what? The Israelites are doing what? They're worshiping a golden calf. It's not going well. Moses takes the two tables of the commandments, slams on the ground. He's so angry, can't believe what they're doing. He intercedes. God says, okay, I'm going with you, Moses. I'm gonna destroy all of them. Moses intercedes for him. He says, okay, okay, I'm gonna, I'll relent from the the destruction. I'll be patient with them. Moses intercedes. Then there's a, Moses goes up again, gets the 10 commandments, round two, right? So then he gets the 10 commandments, comes down to the people. There's this covenant renewal. They say, okay, we're gonna do it better this time. And then in Exodus 35, all that's just happened. And in 35, here's, what's, here's what, what's happened. Moses comes to them and this is what he says. Now it's 35 and 36. I'm gonna read just some sections here. You can, you can read it later this afternoon, but Exodus 35 and 36, here's what happens. Moses says to all the congregation of the people of Israel, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, Let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, and goat's hair, and tanned ram's skins, and goat skins, and acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod, and for the breast piece. So so there's all these things. He says, "Let, let everyone bring these things. In a little context, these are all materials that are gonna be used in the building of the tent of meeting. Right? The Lord's gonna say, hey, I'm gonna meet with you, I'm gonna dwell among you, and, and so I, you're gonna build this, this tabernacle, this tent of meeting for you, for me to dwell among you. So all these things are needed for that. Right? So then, 
chapter 35, then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him. And they brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for, and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. So this is above and beyond. This is their free will offering. Not, not, get, not commanded by the law, but they're saying, hey, there's a need, we're gonna bring it. So that's what happens. And Moses calls Bezalel and Oholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him to come and do the work, right? So now they're gonna to get to work with, with all the materials in the building of, of what the Lord's commanded Moses. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him freewill offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen, all the workers who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary, they came each from the task that he was doing and said to Moses, and so, so again, context here, there's these, these workers who are doing the work required for the, the tent of meeting. And every morning, the people of Israel are bringing their offerings, bringing these materials, and they kept bringing more and more of what was needed so that the craftsmen get to a point where they say, okay, we can't work anymore. We gotta go talk to Moses about this problem because there's a big problem. So they go to Moses and they say, back to verse five of, of chapter 35, there's what they say to Moses. The people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So what does Moses do? Moses gave command and the word was proclaimed throughout, throughout all the camp. Here's what Moses says. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution to the sanctuary. Stop, stop bringing your stuff. So the people, listen, this is unbelievable. The people were restrained from bringing and verse seven, here's why they were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. I mean, what a picture. What a picture. When I read that, that morning, I was actually sitting downstairs in the lobby of the Great Wolf Lodge at one of the high back tables. And I read that and I immediately, I prayed, God, make that us. Make that Fox Hill Road Baptist Church, make us men and women of generous hearts and make us a church that finds year after year after year that we have sufficient supply to do all the work we've been called to do and more. I mean, some of you may not remember this, but a few years ago, Christ Fellowship Church, they're, they're in the pillar network with us, but Christ Fellowship Church of Williamsburg, they donated out of the blue $15,000 to our church. Right? They had gone well over their annual budget and they wanted to bless another church. And so Peter calls me and says, hey, here's what we're gonna do. Is that, is that agreeable to you? I mean, I'm almost in tears on the phone. Like, are you serious? I can't fathom a church having $15,000 say, hey, we want to bless you with this, right? But that is a picture of God's sufficiency in and through generous hearts. And I long for that to be us. Because I, now let me make this clear, I will never tell you to stop giving and stop being generous. I'm not gonna send out, hey, stop it. But what I will do is to, I long to be able to report back to you and say, hey, we have this much excess and here's ways we can bless the pants off of another church. Here's a ministry that has great needs. So let's bless them. That's what I long to do. 
And so, so, so I long for us to be generous so that we can be generous. That, that's my heart. And so the two things that, that struck me from that picture of Exodus 35 and 36 is, is when the people were restrained from, from bringing because the material they had was sufficient to do all the work. And that's why I started with the conviction I did. We have within our body sufficient provision for what we're called to do. We do, there's no doubt about that. The Lord will provide for us all that we need for the work that we are called to do. God wouldn't have us here if that were not the case. That, that's, that's, just, that's just the reality of things. So it struck me that, that they had sufficient provision. But the other thing that struck me from the passage was the role of the heart. As I read, maybe you noticed the language used of those who were called to and then in fact did contribute, right? Whoever is of generous heart, bring an offering. And those whose heart stirred them and those whose heart moved them, they're the ones who are coming and giving. The overwhelming generosity was from hearts that were moved. It's a heart thing. These people, these Israelites, they, they were just slaves in Egypt and they'd been delivered and then they began grumbling and worshiping a golden calf and the Lord had been gracious to them. And, and they were given an opportunity to contribute very specifically to the very work that the Lord was doing in their midst. And I don't believe that they could have overstated their privilege to take part in what was going on if we were to ask them. I don't imagine any of them stopping to ask if the percentage that they were giving was good enough. They, they don't have that category. I, I don't imagine any of them looking at the neighbors wondering why they weren't giving more. I imagine these people were so amazed that the God who had every right to destroy them for their short-sighted idolatry had instead been merciful to them. And they said, he's our God, he's gonna be with us. Yes, let's do whatever it takes to keep him here. These people knew and believed that everything they had was of grace so that no cost was too high. You need, you need my purple yarn? Take it all. That doesn't matter. Or, or whatever, you need the, these, whatever it was, take it. There's a much higher purpose than for me. Their hearts were moved because their hearts were solely focused on the covenant keeping God who was going to remain with them. So that's, the picture. And so having gone through these first three points, here, here's my summary sentence of this sermon. And then I'll just give you a few practical suggestions. But the summary sentence taking these three first points is this. Faithful givers worship God through the use of their money, give sacrificially of all that they have, and find sufficient provision for all they are called to do. Right? Faithful givers worship God through the use of their money. That's point one. Give sacrificially of all that they have. That's point two. And point three, they find sufficient provision for all that they're called to do. That is the definition. That's the summary. That's our goal. That's what I'm aiming for. That's what we as elders are aiming for here at Fox Hill Road Baptist Church. So let me just end with a few practical suggestions. In fact, I debated not giving any of my own and just telling you what John Wesley said. In fact, his 1872 sermon, it's titled The Use of Money, you, you, can look, there's a, you can look it up and you can read his sermon. In fact, I printed it out, it's in my office. I read it this morning. But in this sermon, he gives three rules to, he calls them plain rules to govern Christians and their giving. And I thought, I'll just give them the three rules of Wesley. So I am gonna give them to you, but then I'm gonna give you some own, my own practical suggestion. But what Wesley said was, rule number one, gain all that you can. Rule number two, save all that you can. And rule number three, give all that you can. 
Those are just three simple rules. And it's helpful to read through those because he, he explains how they relate. And when he says save, he doesn't mean, hey, put it in a bank. In fact, he says to put money in the Bank of England is just as good as throwing it to the sea. He said, if you've saved, but you're not spending it to bless others, you haven't really saved, right? So, so when he says save, it doesn't mean, hey, put it all in an account somewhere for the future. He says save in terms of don't spend uh, on, he says that the desires of the flesh and the, the pride of life um, and the desires of the flesh. Don't spend unnecessarily. So that's what he means in save. So look at where you're spending unnecessarily and then don't spend it. That's what he means by save. So then you can give all, all away. So that's what he says. But here's just a few, few practical suggestions I'd give. The first would be examine your heart in this area. Following Jesus involves a right use of money. So if you're a follower of Christ, ask the hard questions of your heart. Why do you give? Why aren't you giving? Why do you give the amount you give? Right? Ask your heart the hard questions. Where is my heart in relation to this? Is it costly to me? Do, do, I, feel, do I feel the loss when I, it leaves my account? Is it costly? And right? so examine the heart. Second, very practically, seek to give regularly. Seek to give regularly. Now in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul, he's, there's a collection. He's getting ready to go to Corinth and, and he's gonna take up a collection to go to the other Christians in Jerusalem And he says, this is verse two of chapter 16. He says, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. So Paul says, hey, I'm coming. There's a need in Jerusalem. So every day on the first, every week on the first day of the week, that's it. When they gather, that's on Sunday. He's saying, just set aside and store it up. So when I get there, you just say, hey, Paul, here it is. Go to Jerusalem, take it. So so there's this, this regularity that Paul says is necessary. And so the point being, set aside something regularly for the Lord. And we don't have to be dogmatic about it, but there is a regularity, right? And and when we are regularly doing it, consistently doing it, it is saying we are in control of our money. We're using it intentionally. So if it's once a week, do it once a week. If it's once a month, do it once a month. If it's once a quarter, do it once a quarter. If it's once a year, do it once a year. My point is not the time. My point is to do it intentionally and regularly, that, that's, that is a way to give faithfully. It helps you, but it also helps us as a church to know, well, what can we expect? Because we are making a budget based on what we get to say, well, this seems to be a good use. And if, if there's not regular consistency, we don't know what, how to plan. And so it helps. So plan or seek to give regularly. Seek to give, uh, connected to that, seek to give according to a plan. Stewardship is thrown th- is shown through intentionality. Your money is gonna find a way to be spent, whether you plan it or not. It always does. And so to go about living in this world with constant income and no plan on how you're gonna spend that income is a sure way to guarantee neglect and a sure way to not be able to spend in ways you want to spend. A great way to exercise stewardship is to have a budget. That's not a bad word, have a budget. A budget is simply a tool that helps you steward what you have. Just like a schedule or a calendar helps you steward your time. A budget forces you to think through the money that you have and the money that you need to spend before it's spent. So the budget says, okay, these are categories that the money that we are given are gonna be spent. I mean, we have a church budget because we want our collective money to be spent in specific ways and the money is spent according to our budget. And the plan prevents careless or unaccounted for spending. And so if you're convinced, okay, I need to give, I hear what you're saying, but, but I don't see any way for me to give. 
right? I would say you need a budget because I can almost guarantee that there is money for you to give. I mean, imagine, we won't do this, but imagine if your monthly expenses were put before the church and every member. So we have a, hey, we're gonna have a budget committee to examine Mrs. Smith's budget and her, her expenses and her income. Imagine if we assigned a team to look over your spending and to create an annual budget for you. Do you think something would change in your giving if that happened? I mean, again, we're not gonna do that. I realize there are Smiths here, right? Just pick that name. But, but that thought process, right? If, if other eyes are on it, we would think, oh gosh, yeah, that's not necessary. But when we budget, we are simply being intentional with our finances and we're exercising dominion over our money. In fact, a budget is telling your money where to go. And that's helpful. Third practical advice, suggestion, is seek counsel for your giving. And I think this is the most helpful thing that you could do. I mean, think about, as you think about living the Christian life, if you didn't grow up in church or if you've never been taught this, right? Or if you grew up in a church that taught very unhealthily, unhealthily regarding finances, the best thing for you to do is to talk with a mature Christian about the subject. Open up and seek counsel, seek advice in this area. And just like you would do if you were a young parent and you needed parenting advice. You wouldn't say, well, no, I can't, I can't talk to anyone about this. Right? You, you need help. You want to grow. You want to understand. So you say, hey, talk to me about how you did parenting or evangelism advice or a specific sin struggle or any other aspect of the Christian life. When you, there's an area you need help, you talk to other Christians. That's the purpose of the body, to help and encourage. So, so some of you should just set up a time to talk with someone. Just sit down. I know that there are people who'd love to talk to you about this. And in, in this specific area, from my experience, the older the better. Think of the oldest person you can think of in this church and go talk to them. I'm serious. The older, the better, because I know as a matter of, a, as a matter of fact that this congregation sitting here this morning, there are many people Many individuals, many couples, many families who have seen God's faithfulness over the long term. And they could tell you story after story after story. We didn't know how this was gonna happen. We didn't know how it was gonna work. But God was faithful. Let me tell you, they could take your, your whole week of telling you story after story of God's gracious provision. And so talk to someone, you'll be greatly encouraged of how the Lord is faithful to provide and care for his people. That is a promise. He knows what you need. Look at the birds, look at the flowers. They're provided for. He's not gonna let his children go hungry or without clothing. And so ask an older Christian, a brother or sister, set up a time to get together and talk and ask questions and listen and be challenged and be encouraged. So seek counsel. Giving is a spiritual issue. It's a matter of faithful Christian living. So if you have problems or concerns or questions, why wouldn't you seek counsel? If you're really wanting help, say, hey, here's, here's my budget. Here's my monthly expenses. Could you look over this and tell me if there's ways you think that I could cut? Ways I think I could grow? But be ready for the answer if you seek that counsel. Then the last thing I'll say, last piece of advice would be to start somewhere. Start somewhere. I think 10% is a good place to start. 
I don't think it's this place to stop. I don't think it's a place to stop, but it's a good place to start. Now, maybe, maybe you can't do that right now, right? So that's fine. Start somewhere. I mean, start with whatever you can, but, but start somewhere. That is, that is how, you, how you get to faithful giving is you start somewhere. You don't say, well, I'll wait till next month when, when it'll be better. I won't have this unexpected expense. Then I'll do it. No, you start now and you trust the Lord moving forward. And so the verse I want to, this verse has been, I, Jancy and I, and when we were in seminary, we were financial, we were broke. We were dead broke. I mean, I had three jobs, part-time jobs. I was a barista. I worked at a health and rec center and I worked at a childcare center. And I was a full-time seminary student. We were broke. Right? And I remember this verse, we were, our, our small group was studying the book of Hebrews and this verse stuck with me and it's been a reminder constantly. So I want you to listen to Hebrews 13, 5. And then I'll pray for us and we'll close. But here's what Hebrews 13, 5 says, right? In this context, at the end of Hebrews, he's, he's kind of giving these, these last exhortations. And he, he writes this, he says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Now, now he could stop there and we could know what he mean, means. We tell this to our kids all the time, be content with what you have. And what we mean is, hey, there's kids who don't have food to eat every day. There's kids who don't have a nice bed to sleep in. There's kids who don't have clothes to wear. There's kids who don't have a uh, hundred flat basketballs and footballs and balls to play with, right? Be content with, uh, with what you have, right? We could say, well, look what we have. We, we should be content, but that's not where Hebrews ends. That's not his point. He says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Do you hear the logic there? What is he saying you have that you can be content with? You have God. You have him who said, I'm never gonna leave you or forsake you. And so contentment comes with our relationship with the Lord. If you have him, it doesn't matter what else you do or don't have. And if that's where your contentment is, money can come and go. And you can give faithfully and freely and cheerfully and gladly. And so that's our hope. It is, a, it is a hope that we would be content with the Lord who has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll sing in response.